HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Mira Evnen, and I haven't had a guest roll in with such swagger in a while, carrying, what, a Campari and soda? Yeah. It's one, it, of, well, one of those after, kind of days. Yeah, I think so. The, the, I want the sun to come out, and the car ride over here wasn't nice to me. Yeah, so. yeah it's nearing. Yeah. And, you know, for a West Coast Oakland lady, uh, the pastoral sun always seems to shine on the East Bay. Well, yeah, well, sort of. I mean, this, these, these great days are familiar to me and I kind of have a love-hate relationship with them. So. Yeah. Well, let, let's dispel that, you know, the land of Chez Panisse and Alice Waters is just the most beautiful bounty you've ever seen. Is, is it true or is it untrue? Oh, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have very sweet memories of it growing up. I mean, I worked there for a short time. I uh, grew up going there, eating across the street at the cheese board. I mean, it's it's so much part of my youth that I, and I think back of it on it. So, so sweetly. Um, but it is beautiful. Every single time I go back, it's, it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, you literally grew up on the UC Berkeley campus. Yeah. I was born <laughs> on the UC. Oh, really? For, in yeah. student housing. My yeah. parents were there. My, my father was, uh, um, doing his, uh, PhD. I was literally born on the zip code of UC Berkeley campus. So do you remember what the food temperament was like then? I mean, you you have a father who's English, yep. mother who's Israeli, yep. so you already had that multiculturalism. But I feel like there was so much happening in Berkeley at that time. Yeah, was it just bred into you? It it was, and it only it took me leaving, I think, to come to the East Coast to kind of recognize that I had traveled so much growing up that it just. Um, you know, my travels and where I grew up and how we ate in the house was just 
totally normal to me. And it was, I, I took it very much for granted. And I think it's been in the last couple of years, <laughs> couple of years, the last 10 decade, you know, the decade that I've lived um, on the East Coast or more, actually. Um, it's, it, I've come to understand it better. Sushi. Let's use that as an example because you, you have such a wonderful story about kind of your introduction to sushi was at yeah. a very, very young age, yeah. almost prenatal. Yeah, it went, literally. Yeah, my mom had um, discovered it when she was pregnant with me, which, you know. <laughs> Antithetical like, <laughs> to what they say today. Exactly, exactly. But who cares? Um, and and I just, I, you know, we, we would go on vacation, I think, early on there's a picture of me in Hawaii, like scarfing down brown rice and raw tuna. And I have a haircut like my two older brothers and because uh, that was just easier for my mom and and I I don't know it's one of my favorite favorite foods there was a short time in college that I think I overdid it with the sushi and I was like I can't eat anymore but um but then you have really good sushi again and it's okay but this was like a request at at, at birthday parties when yeah. you were when we were very very yeah. young you, you preferred sushi over chocolate yeah, cake. yeah my mom brought out that cake and I just looked at her and I said more sushi <laughs> is, is it that aspect of food or home cooking that's been kind of the center point of how you interact with cuisine um i think it's more of the home cooking and breaking bread with people i mean i i do love going out to eat and i love uh experiencing food cooked by others and and um food from around the world but i think for me ultimately it's like going to somebody's home, sitting at a table with them, and, and eating what they like to eat, which is the most exciting for me. You know, we're really going through your whole life now, because let, let's talk about elementary school, because an extension of eating at home is often found in kids' lunches. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I remember kind of being one of those boring ones, because I think I ate nothing but tomato and mayonnaise sandwiches for a good but like, three, four years. But those are delicious. But you can't, it's not a currency. You can't trade that at the schoolyard. Oh, I'd trade for that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what did you have and what did you trade for then? Um, there was just, I mean, there was the like Chinese food leftovers, which I always, I would eat like strategically to save some for the next day. And if it survived my brother's pillaging the, the fridge, um, I would take that to school or, and there was, you know, I'd make myself turkey sandwiches on, on a bagel which, you know, I at the time thought were bagels, and then I came to realize that they were like steamed buns or something like that <laughs> from um, Noah's Bagels. But um, yeah, no, it's, I think I just really early on just, you know, trading with people and, and tasting what they like to eat was fascinating to me. And one day, will you recreate Diane's teriyaki drumsticks or her father's for me? Um, yeah, I will try. You know, I actually think it's that teriyaki bottle that has like... Vaguely Asian, but somehow still looks. It, I think it's the oyve. The oy. Have you ever seen it? Oh yeah. Yeah, I think it was that with the sesame seeds on it, and it was like deliciously burnt on pieces. And don't one, get me on one, the parallels of Jewish and Japanese cuisine. Oh well, that's for another show. For yeah. another show. <laughs> but you know, all this seems so almost curated. I said, uh, I'd like to say, you know, your your life has had these instances inflected with food in these kind of wonderful ways from your parents' business trips to Japan, and then waking up to Japanese breakfast, miso soup, rice, and sukimono. At what point did you decide that, you know, all this kind of crowdsourced food knowledge was something that you wanted to kind of turn into a career? I mean, I think I formally figured that or came to terms with it just a couple of years ago, and I'm I'm still in that process. I mean, it's funny how if if you're astute enough, you can notice 
uh, at least hindsight, you know, it's like my friend Fanny Garson just put, posted a photo of her from, I, I don't know, she, mu- she must be like three or something like that. And she, she has like chocolate on her face and an ice cream scoop in her hand. And she's standing there kind of like, like a boss over, over these things that she now is such a boss over. So I, and I said to her, I said, isn't it funny how like these things are so apparent at an early age? And so I think for me, I'm still kind of, it's still revealing itself to to myself, if I if I was willing to look at it um, without anxiety and without you know the the mind of an artist or whatever, I think I'd be um, maybe a little bit more at ease with it. But it's it's always revealing itself to me. So I I'd say I just decided yesterday <laughs> that I was gonna, gonna do it. You know, at thirteen you took a Thai cooking class. At fifteen you assisted Alice Medrich. Yeah. At sixteen you took a course at Cordon Bleu. I mean, in Paris. Uh, it was always a fascination, but, you know, it, it takes, like you said, an astute but kind of wanted soul to to really say, this is me, this is who defines me. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a combination of, of growing up and having parents who, at the same time, were incredibly supportive about pretty much anything I wanted to do, but also had their own concerns about, you know, working really hard and and uh, my mother always said well if you work in a kitchen of a restaurant you the work the life of a dog and that might be true but if you enjoy that then that's what it is and so um i think it's it's been kind of a, a constant process of revealing itself to myself about it um and i still have those things where i, I don't know what you thought you were going to be when you grew up but i haven't grown up yet well that's <laughs> good that's good don't um I kind of still say that when I grow up, I want to be X, Y, Z. And so it's just, it's still a process. And I think um, we have these ideas about, or at least I I should say, I have these ideas about things that I should be doing and things that I want to be doing. And, um, and then when I think about what I'm actually doing, it takes my friends like you and other people to remind me that I'm actually doing things that, that I love, that I'm good at. Maybe I'm not so good at, but I'm interested in. And, and it's, it's, Yeah. I always feel like it's about what you're doing now, you know, and I could keep on listing off uh, when in high school, you worked for June Taylor, one of the most wonderful women in preserves. Um, You know, you worked at Red Hill Dairy in San Francisco at the farmer's market before it it was in its bespoke place behind, you know, the ferry building. But it's always about the investment in the now. And I've known you as a person to be, you know, completely invested in whatever you're dealing with at the moment. Nick's tamal and masa is kind of at the (laughs) forefront of what you're doing now. But as someone like you, and I consider myself in the same kind of cadre of people, um, being a jack of all trades or being a renaissance person uh, isn't always the best thing in a specialized world. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's tricky. Um, the, The irony in all that is that my background is, um, I was formally trained as an architect and I worked as an architect for a short time. And, and I remember thinking, I just really, I want to be really good at being an architect. And the irony is of course, like an architect is a jack of, you know, a jack of all trade master of none, like, um, and where you're kind of, a you're very good at many different things. Um, and so I guess I've stayed consistent in that want, um, and I've kind of 
I've augmented that saying to be jack of all trade, master of some. <laughs> so, you know, I think I, I realize that there are things that I'm always going to want to dapple in and, and try. Um, but it also keeps me from doing things, you know, like the whole Nixamalamasa thing. I love it, but do I actually want to pursue that as like a full time for the next you know, two to five years as a, as a business of sorts in whatever form that comes to life in, um, it often stops me. So yeah, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Know, do you find that as well? Yeah. But you know, sometimes that leads to just knowing where all the best taco joints are Yeah, and you know, that, that is an asset in and of itself, but you know, I, I'm a chip away person. I slowly, but I'm, if, if, my work methodology was uh, cuisine. It would be barbecue because it's very slow mm. and low. But when it comes out, it's like exactly right and what you want yeah. and, you know, kind of been poured over. But I, I can't do something without kind of thinking about it, ruminating about it for way, way, way too long. I'm the same way with buying pants, though. Right. <laughs> so you just never, you're just pantless. Yeah, Every, most of the time. He's pantless right now, yeah. everybody. No. They, they call it the poo bear. <laughs> the poo- um, <laughs> But, you know, again, being fascinated by so many things, it's when do you take the risk yeah. uh, and, and plunge into whatever pool that is and, and just say, this is who I'm going to be right now. I wish we could take calls because I want to hear like everybody's <laughs> ideas of, of when do you know, you know, I'm still kind of recognizing that and figuring it out. Well, we're going to take a quick break and figure that all out for you off air and then <laughs> come right back and chat some more you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org we'll be right back I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing. But very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds. Depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. 
the bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. <laughs> you know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill, here with Mira F9. Yeah. No, see, I said it wrong, and I'm seeing if you're going to No, but I responded. In, in the whisper. <laughs> but, you know, we, we were talking about kind of being an undefined person in the food world, and there are a lot of these kind of, I'm going to use the word incorrectly, polygot, somebody that, polymath, somebody that, you know, has the skill set and, and can really do everything, but doesn't do one thing and i know you as a stylist i know you as a flower arranger um i know you as someone who came uh you know a handful of weeks ago and helped me package bento boxes for my sumo stew events this engagement uh of doing all these things um you said kind of stops you from doing that one thing that you want to do what are all the things that you're doing right now? And let's vet it out for you, and we'll figure out which way you should go. Oh, man, if I can remember everything, <laughs> this is the problem. Um, well, currently, something that's just at the, the very beginning of the process is um, a cookbook that I'll be uh, styling um, and collaborating with a, a couple of other really talented, talented women. Um, it's a Syrian cookbook, or rather a cookbook for a Syrian refugee. Um, so uh, we... We just came up with the name, um, which is Bread and Salt Between Us. Um, and it'll, I think the subtitle is something like, I should probably know this, but, um, you know, recipes from a Syrian refugee co- kitchen or something like that. Um, so working on that, that came to me through um, dear friend and colleague Liz Clayman, who's an amazing photographer who you know. Um, and that came to her through someone else. And it was just kind of this uh, Jacob's Ladder of connections. Um, and so we'll be working on that this summer. We're just the beginning of that. So that that's something I'm really looking forward to. Um, and then there's, I don't know, what else am I working on, Michael? I don't even know. Well, you know, it's your care and compassion to like this culturalism um, being like, Present on what is important in, in, in this kind of global world, mm. you know, Syrian refugees now, but you have an understanding about, about you know, so many people and how their culturals, cultural, cultures affect other cultures. And I almost feel like that's where your greatest assets lay. Almost as like this this conduit, this mediator of sorts. Because if there's something that you're doing, and I often peruse your Instagram, I said, what the heck is that? I, I try to extract that and pick your brain of that. Yeah. Um, do you do that with other people? And if so, what are those things kind of at the forefront right now? Um, mm, good question. Uh, yeah, I think I do do that. Uh, I'm, I mean, Instagram's just 
it's a rabbit hole. I mean, I just, it's a, it's both awesome and, um, and such a time suck. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm constantly looking to understand, um, kind of how history has impacted our food, uh, habits. Um, you know, what are the connections, like my interest in Mexican food, for example, one of my favorite things about it is finding the connections between Middle Eastern cuisine and, Mexican cuisine and, and this idea of Moors to Mexico. So sometimes you'll see me post something and I'll hashtag it Moors to Mexico because it's something that I'm trying to catalog for myself because I, I see a potential of a project there. Um, and then uh, another one is Immigrant Food Project, um, which to my delight, I've seen so many people start. I mean, when I, when I started that, like literally the day before Trump, you know, was um, was sworn into office. Um, there weren't that many hashtags in it and it's just kind of mushroomed, which is awesome. But looking at like, you know, there's so many different cultures in New York alone, um, that, you know, we partake in, in certain foods or the connections of similarities between certain dishes and, um, kind of the, the genesis of that I find really fascinating, um, and how it impacts our lives. I mean, I, I just think the minute, for me, at least, like if I don't have something to say to somebody or I'm looking for an in to start a conversation with someone or, you know, overhear something at the supermarket about cooking, it's oh, it's immediately a way to connect with somebody um, because everybody, for the most part, has to eat and um, and does eat um, some of us more than others. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's like everyone, everybody's had that experience of food. So it's it's just it's. I don't know. It's my way in. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You know, it makes me think about the word fusion and what that meant for cuisine for so long. And it was, you know, this mashup of two cultures um, with very little contextual basis. You know, it was, it was more about flavor profiles rather than... Or you shock know, value. Yeah. Rather than kind of the story behind it. And right. when you talk about something as, 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 you know, distinctly different as Moorish cuisine, you know, uh, almost, you know, the Jews, the Ashkenazis and Sephardics in... in you know, Spain, um, and the corollaries to Mexico, I understand that from a flavor profile's perspective, but then I know there's so much more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are things like, uh, um, uh, the Portuguese, all the port foods around the world from Macau to, um, the story of Maggie, M-A-G-G-I, the, the soy sauce that made its way all the way to Latin America. And, you know, fusion doesn't have to just be a mashup. It can, it can be a marriage. And, you know, I, I wonder if you if you explore that thing in the same way that you're a dual citizen. Um, do do you look at the marriage between your parents, uh, English and Israeli food, and see the similarities and differences? Um, you know, I I think the only thing that kind of I could assign to my father is like a food uh, culture of his own is like his love of marmite and twiglets <laughs> and eating cheese and raisins and like you know he's he's basically a pescatarian um if he had his druthers that's what he would be um whereas my mother is so she's like she's like me like this is the best way I can equate it is I don't know if you've ever seen like a blind child little child and they'll like press things on their chin to understand it better because it's one of the surfaces that they can experience the world through and that's it's not so far off. I don't go for the chin, but I go in the mouth and I like, I want to experience things that way. So there's not 
there's not a lot that I can recognize um, in mashups in my parents. You know, my mom's basically the cook in the house. Um, and so, and she's an amazing one. So um, there's, there's very little there to observe. I think, um, I think it's probably just through all the travel that I was fortunate enough to do growing up with my parents um, and their curiosities of, of checking out other cultures and stuff like that, um, that, I don't know. It's it's been something that I've kind of arrived at. I think on my own, not because I've watched my parents uh, expose me to that. I guess. Have you been to Israel? I have. It's it's kind of a fascinating time in New York, seeing like Hamasarias open up here. Yeah. And I know before you said you're, you're much you have a larger affinity towards your home kitchen than you do going out to eat. Mm. But what is it like seeing Israeli cuisine kind of start to find its place and in, in this yeah. metropolis. I think it's both rad and also like there's like the little kid in me that is like no mine, <laughs> mine, not for you. I I think my concern is and it and you know someone who's Mexican might look at me and have the same feeling, but I I get concerned that there will be kind of a reductive quality and the thought of like oh Israeli food hummus, uh, falafel, shawarma. And there's just so much more. I mean, there's it's a melting pot in Israel, you know, and I so much more than I think I I was aware of. It was just so natural to me growing up, and it makes so much more sense now that my mom, my mom is so curious about the world through food. It's because in Israel, for her growing up post-war, it, there was a melting pot. You had the Arab influence, you had the Ashkenazim, you had the Sephardim that were coming, you have like everybody from everywhere. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, I mean, that's the world we live in. But uh in terms of my feelings, it's awesome that people are getting to know Israeli food. I just, I hope that they like really get in there and like. Well, what, what, what should we be exposed to outside of hummus and falafel? And oh, that's a good question. I mean, I it's funny because while I do have citizenship there and I've spent a lot of time there, I'm often um, I go to visit family and I'm stuck in kitchens eating like my aunt's cheesecake, which is like the only cheesecake I'll eat, and you know having Nescafe and like answering the same. 20 questions that I get from family on repeat, on repeat, excuse me. And so, um, I don't know, for me, it's still an exploration. Um, I think the interesting thing, I mean, it's just the, the bounty in terms of the produce that comes out of Israel is amazing. Um, and the approach of, of taking references and putting it together. So I would say, just go to Israel. Yeah. Or the Diamond District here in or New York. Or the Diamond District. You know, yeah. I, and I, I've, I've... Get yourself some diamonds. Yeah, it's like one block on, what, 46th mm-hmm. Street. Uh, and you can kind of creep up and down second and third floor restaurants. Yeah. And, you know, get boricks, yeah. uh, borekas yeah. everywhere. And it's it's one of the few, other than like Borough Park and East Williamsburg, yeah. where is there is like a public... And welcoming uh, um, Jewish enclave of restaurants, yeah. but is Jewish necessarily Israeli? No, I mean I I think my friends at NY Shuk are doing an amazing job, um, kind of championing all the different angles of Israeli cuisine, and they they come from a Sephardic background, um, and so for me when I go over there, I eat things that are familiar to me and I don't necessarily know kind of the etymology of them, you know, where they came from, what, what the root was, um, and being able to trace, you know, whether on one side they have, uh, some Lebanese in the family, they have Moroccan in the family and there's Turkish. And so I, I get to see all these different things. I mean, 
burakas come in like so many different cultures. I've been kind of obsessed with making filo by hand uh, recently, but I come to that, for example, through um, refugees that my parents worked with when I was a kid who were Bosnian. And so they were just rolling, you know, I didn't know what it was specifically at the time. I was just like, wow, that dough is really thin and see-through um, and delicious. Um, but it's, you know, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. So, um, again, I don't know if that answered your question. But. No, no. See, the fact that you think it's all the same thing just uh, better illustrates how much of a citizen of the world you are. Oh, thank you. And how everyone should kind of think in that same vein. And the best way to do so is by looking at your Instagram, mm. um, by working with and collaborating. Yes. And Amen. just sitting down for a conversation with you because you are such a wealth of, of knowledge and, again, compassion uh, to all these different you know, cultures and cuisines that it's always a refreshing, you know, conversation with you. And selfishly, that's why you're on air with me today. Because well, it's been too long and we need to catch totally. up. Totally. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's so much fun to be here. What's your website? It's uh, it's very boring. It's Mira Evnin at <laughs> or Mira Evnin dot com. <laughs> and your Instagram? So boring, I couldn't remember it. Um, it's also at Mira Evnin. You can also find me at Walnut X Vine. And what is the Walnut X Vine extension? Um, that came out of um, having done uh, a floral install, uh, kind of a massive one, two years ago for Hermes. Um, and it was a dear friend of mine that I had gone to school with who was working for me on the project that um, pushed me to do it. She was like, this is your chance. You need to start this other Instagram name. Um, and so that there it's a little bit more um, all things around the table. Um, and and kind of, I think, the more professional side of me in some ways. Some days I think it's more professional, and some days I just think it's another excuse to take pr pictures and post. Well, food and flowers and everything in between yeah. on the table. Yes. Uh, check out everything that Mira does. And thank you again for being on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Tickell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A uh, big thank you to Music by Cookies and... David Tadashore Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.